Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. Hey guys, it's good to be back. I'm Uriah here with Chris to start off the new year with a fresh episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. Just want to start off saying Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, for Chris, who's who's here, how was your New Year's, Chris? Um, it was pretty good. Nothing too eventful, but uh, it was good. How was yours? Just like you, very uneventful, didn't go anywhere. We actually did a midnight toast with some neighbors in the middle of the street <laughs> while the fireworks were going off in the distance. So it was, it was pretty cool. You didn't do anything, Chris? You didn't? Did you stay up? Uh, yeah, we stayed up. I, I watched the third Maze Runner film with my sister. So that was Ooh. our New Year's. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, Chris is a big movie buff, and I'm not surprised that he stayed up watching a really cool flick. So at this point, um, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce our guest today. We have a special guest. We have Philip Rossman Reich, a site expert from Orlando Magic Daily, and he's going to be providing some insight on the New Year's Eve game and some other stuff related to some former Sixers playing for Orlando and a current player who the Sixers have that used to play for Orlando. So, um, Philip, how are you today, sir? Uh, I am doing better. I, I'd be doing a lot better if the Magic had uh, bounced back with a win last night. But, uh, you know, it's it's a long, long season. So we'll, we'll see what happens coming, coming up next. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys have had some pretty early success. You guys were undefeated, and then you ran into the Sixers. So <laughs> The buzzsaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How was your New Year's real quick? Did you do anything uh, was- special? Uh, it was good. I was uh, I was at the Magic game uh, to watch this watch the Magic play the Sixers. Uh, so I was I was working a little bit New Year's Eve, and then uh, I'm actually a Northwestern alum, and Northwestern was in town. So I, I you know because Florida is Florida, uh, I was able to go to the Citrus Bowl with with my mask on and 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 all that, and watch a Northwestern uh, defeat Auburn for for Citrus Bowl championship. So very very had a good good start to the new year, if not a good finish to it. <laughs> nice, nice, awesome. cool. Um, and we're just going to jump right in and talk about that New Year's Eve game that Uriah mentioned. wasn't wasn't the closest, most thrilling of games. It was it was pretty much a Sixers blowout from the beginning, Philip. But for you, from Orlando's side, what did you make of it? And what stood out the most? Um, you know, obviously, I think the thing that stood out to me the most is that you know Orlando's offense was on a tear through the first four games of the season, and. You know, Oklahoma City had an okay defense, but they were without Al Horford and George Hill, and, and the Magic actually struggled with Oklahoma City on Saturday. But Philadelphia was really kind of the first real test of the season. Um, you know, they beat Miami in, on opening night, but opening night's always kind of a coin flip no matter how good the teams are. Um, Philadelphia represented really the first good defense that the Magic faced all year, and, and, and at least the first team that everyone expects you have a good defense throughout the course of the season. So this was really a test, I felt, to see if Orlando's offense was for real. And, you know, while it's one game, and especially because it's early in the season, it, it doesn't mean it's, 
you know, time to say, well, the Magic are, are, are pretenders or, or whatnot. Um, it, it was a pretty significant result. I mean, the Magic's offense struggled from the get-go. Um, you know, Evan Fournier was playing with an injury and, and left the game about eight minutes in uh, and ended up missing Saturday's game, too, with, the, with those back spasms. Um, but the Magic's offense just did not look like it was prepared to play a, a really strong interior defender like Joel Embiid or, or just a, a lengthy perimeter defending team like Philadelphia. And, um, you know, it's 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 tough to win in this league when you can't score, uh, and that, that that would prove that proof of that was Saturday when the Magic lost 108 to 99 to the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, you know a team that everyone expects to be near the bottom of the standings, uh, and, and even with how poorly the Magic shot a game that they they should have still won and had a chance to win at the end, um, but the Philadelphia game just kind of showed me the limits of how the Magic are trying to play and, and how Orlando has to be really on its p's and q's. They they really have to be playing at a high level if they want to compete with, you know, legitimate Eastern Conference contenders like the Sixers. And so it was really just a sign of how much work Orlando has to do to kind of get where they want to be this season. Yeah, I, I think what stood out to me in this game, well, first of all, I have to say this, Philip, this game was circled on a lot of calendars for Sixer fans, simply because whenever Fultz is on the court with the Sixers. There's always this intrigue in terms of is this going to be the ultimate revenge game and how's he's how's he going to do? But what stood out to me outside of the obviously the struggles that Orlando had, I I kind of expected more, but Embiid was just a beast, um, and he only played 26 minutes, and it just shows you how dedicated he is to getting to that form that people expect him to be. So Embiid had his presence felt. Um, Orlando was struggling. I was a little deflated when it came to seeing what Cole Anthony had to offer because I, I saw some highlights of him. He looked like a really good player. But the player that stood out to me in this game that kind of shut down Cole Anthony was Matisse Eibel. What's happening, Phillips? is I'm really high on Matisse. I think his ceiling is, is a lot higher than I'd say maybe Chris or even Lucas. But if this was the first game this season, Philip, that Matisse actually played like he did last year. Now, he didn't set the world on fire with scoring, but he made some really nice defensive plays. And I'm just happy to see that this was a game that he kind of got his confidence back and got some wind in his sails. What do you think, Chris? What stood out to you? Yeah, all the same things that both of you mentioned. I think I think part of the reason for Markel's struggles, which I'm sure we'll talk about um Later in the podcast, it's Ben Simmons, who has been shutting down just about everyone he's guarded. Um, that's just rough for Markel to draw that assignment. Uh, and then I think defensively, Orlando also had some issues. Obviously, Embiid's tough to stop for anyone. We saw Vucevic get visibly frustrated at times. But also, I'll ask you this, Philip: How big a loss do you think John Isaac's absence is this season? Do you think that is going to really be detrimental to Orlando's defense. I know he signed the big extension this summer. Um, how problematic do you think that's going to be season long for them? Uh, I mean, I think it's a huge loss. I mean, it's it's the difference between having a, a pretty good defense and a potentially elite defense. Um, you know, the Magic are are down. You know, a couple of their best defenders, honestly, with with Isaac down. Uh, you know, Alfred Camino's been out with the torn meniscus since last December. He's he had a little bit of a setback in January last January. Uh, and then had to have a procedure to clean some stuff up uh, before the season began. So the Magic are down to, you know, really good help wing and paint defenders. And then Aaron Gordon is still on a minutes restriction. I, you know, I thought he did a decent job defending Ben Simmons uh, in that game. And he's usually done a pretty good job on Ben Simmons throughout his career. But you can just tell he's a step slow. And 
you know, the Magic, the Magic are built on their defense. Uh, you know, that's the Steve Clifford teams are defensive teams. Uh, and, and they know that the only way they're going to find success this season is if they're, you know, in the top 10 in defense. And, and if they can get as good as they can offensively, that's kind of been their formula to make the playoffs the last few years. Um, they've, they've got a lot to clean up. Um, they're trying a few different things defensively that I think they're still getting used to and still figuring out how to play. But, you know, Philadelphia obviously had an incredible shooting night. I know, uh, you know, I've watched a couple of their games before, uh, the magic played the Sixers and they were, you know, the Sixers, my, my takeaway was, you know, Joel Embiid needs shooters around him and the Sixers are just struggling to shoot. They finally came to, they finally came to play and showed up in Orlando. So, you know, to me, the final result was, was a confluence of the magic, not being ready to play you know, the offense struggling against a good, the Magic's offense struggling against a good defense and the Sixers finally being able to shoot the ball and hit and hit outside shots. And that's how you end up with a 30 point loss. uh, You know, when, when you're playing a pretty good team, if, if, you know, you're having a subpar effort and they're having an above par effort, that's, that's what's going to lead to the final result. And, you know, I think, I think Orlando's defense is still, you know, it's, there are signs that it's getting better. I, I think that it's, it's still rounding into form, but it, it was a particular mess that night and it, and it's still got a long way to go. Yeah, I definitely think it was an, an above par effort, as you said, from Phillies, and they aren't going to shoot that well hardly ever. They they almost did against Charlotte last night, but I think they're on a bit of a hot streak. That's obviously going to die down at some point. But you mentioned Orlando's playoff formula, Philip, and they're four and two, two losses in a row, but still a pretty good spot, I would say, tied for second in the East. It's obviously early. A lot of teams are in that mix that probably won't be towards the end. You know, Cleveland's a good example of that. But do you think Orlando has a, a shot at the playoffs this year? Because I know they're a team that a lot of people kind of wrote off during the offseason after Atlanta made their big moves, Washington got Westbrook, et cetera. What, what are Orlando's playoff odds in, in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think at minimum Orlando is going to be in the play-in tournament. Um, you know, I think that the, the expectation is to make the playoffs. I mean, they were a playoff team the last two years. I've, I've kind of been banging the drum that, you know, even though they're magic without Isaac, you know, this is still the same team as last season. And they were a team that faced a ton of injuries last season. On top of that, you know, they, they, they may not be climbing up into the home, fighting for home court advantage or six, seven range, but they're a team that should feel they are one of the eight best teams, in the Eastern conference. They are a team that should feel that they can make the playoffs and, and certainly feel if they, that they can make the play in tournament. And if they get into the play in tournament, that they can win games and, and advance into the regular playoff field. Um, you know, I think that's the expectation uh, in that in that building, I think that's what the bare that what the frankly the the bare minimum of what they should expect is to make the playoffs with with what they've accomplished the last two seasons, uh, and and if they don't make the playoffs, I think we can I think we can call this season a failure. That's kind of the baseline for what this team is trying to build and trying to do, uh, and so you know they I think they have a roster that's good enough to make the playoffs. You know, will I sit here and guarantee that they'll make that field? No, I I won't do that. I mean, I think there's a very real chance that they they fall short. I think honestly. There's with the injuries that they face, and and I think we see that saw this Saturday and saw this to some extent on in Thursday's game. If they lose one or two guys, like losing Evan Fournier, completely killed their offense because they don't have the spacing or the shooting uh, to 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 surround Nikola Vucevic or or to create the the driving lanes for a guy like Markel Fultz. Um, they very easily could be facing an accidental tanking season, uh, you know, especially without Jonathan Isaac, where you know the the, the whole the, the floor just drops out from them. So there's there's a wide range of outcomes that are still possible obviously four and two is is a great start I think the magic were really happy and you know if you would have told me the magic would have started this season four and two I would have looked at the schedule and said yeah that would have been a great that would have been a great start honestly that would be the start I'd expect with losses to Miami and and Philadelphia so you know I think the magic are about where they expected to be Um, they've got a big road trip coming up They, they got a big series of road games 
coming up starting on Friday. They'll head to Houston and Dallas, and they play Milwaukee, and then they take a road trip to Boston, New York, Brooklyn, Indiana, and Minnesota. We're going to learn a lot about this team in the next two weeks and figure out what they can do this season. Um, their their first half schedule is, at least on paper, the easiest in the league, according to ESPN. So the Magic are going to know whether they're in the playoff hunt or not by the midpoint of the season. At this point, we'll turn the page and let's focus on some individual players. And it is obvious who we're going to start with. I know uh, who people are expecting to hear about. So Markel Fultz. It seemed like for us, Philip, when he was drafted a few years ago, he was the number one pick and he came to Philadelphia. The moment he started tinkering with his shooting form, it was like it was doomed from the get go. And we all know that things did not turn out the way that he had hoped in Philadelphia as well. But he ended up in Orlando. So let's talk about Fultz's trade to Orlando and let's get your opinion on what the Magic fans were feeling when they received Markel Fultz. I mean, I, I think there was a ton of excitement to, to get a player like Markel Fultz. I mean, obviously, um, you know, he hadn't play, he hadn't played the, the, the injury and the shoulder issues that he was having. But to bring in a player of that caliber and that talent um, was extremely exciting for this this Magic fan base. I mean, I think, you know, Magic fans have been ever since Dwight Howard left, have been hungering for a star. I mean, I think, you know, most Magic fans have been trying to come up with Nikola Vucevic and Evan Fournier trade ideas for the last five years, it seems like, because neither one of them seemed to fit kind of the branding of a star, of, you know, just a bona fide score to someone who can just impact games uh, when everything breaks down. And, you know, the, the Magic have been a very kind of system-based team, uh, and they just don't have a lot of room for the improvisation that's necessary to be successful in the playoffs. And so the potential for Markel Fultz to be that kind of a player, a former number one pick, and, and to uh, frankly give up as little as the Magic had to give up to get him. It was what Jonathan Simmons and a first round pick that wasn't really, that probably wasn't going to convey to them anyway. Um, it felt like a really appropriate risk for a young team like the Magic to take, to take, to, to kind of give a second draft chance to a guy like Fultz and, and to give him you know, just a, a fresh start and a clean slate to, to kind of start over. You know, Magic fans were really, really excited about him when they acquired him. Um, when he stepped onto the floor for the first time, that excitement was was warranted as he as he really made an immediate impact from this from this moment he stepped on the court. And I mean, he's been there for a full year now. Uh, how have fans embraced him up to this point? Are they is he meeting their expectations? Is he exceeding their expectations? How How do you guys feel about him right now? I mean, I think I think he's met I think he's met and exceeded expectations, uh, you know, completely. Um, you know, I think that the team just the team fans at least wanted some hope to gleam onto, like some some hope for a future where they can climb up the ladder, so to speak. And you know, Fultz came in and, and really even like the first preseason game, it was just it was very very clear that he was the be- the the better starter, the better point guard on the team, and it was just going to be a matter of time before when Steve Clifford felt comfortable starting him over DJ Augustine. Um, you know, he's just the way that he he moves and controls the game um, have been things that Magic fans have been clamoring for for a long time. I mean, I think the biggest criticism that I that I got from from followers and Magic fans was they need to take the ball out of Evan Fournier's hand and put it in Marco Fultz's hand and trust him to run the team. And I think that's honestly been one of the big adjustments the Magic made early this season that really helped their offense kind of take another level. Um, you know, they've, they've let Fultz have a lot more control over the offense and the tempo of the game. And that's, that's helped. I mean, again, the last two games, notwithstanding, 
that's helped the Magic's offense a ton. Um, you, 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 the, the, the thing is, you all you got to treat him like a like a rookie essentially. Like last year was his rookie season. I mean, you know, yes, he played a little bit for Philadelphia, but 33 games and the way he was in and out of the lineup is is not really enough to get a feel for the NBA. Last year was essentially Fultz's rookie season, and I think you know the Magic were pumping him up and saying expect big things from him. I think fans are expecting some very big things from him, and, and at least through the first four games, he struggled a little bit the last two, but um, he's he's shown some tremendous growth and tremendous control over 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 the offense and and what he has to do. And and you know you look back at performances that he had his rookie uh, last year, not his rookie year, but last year. Um, where he showed flashes of what he could do, the triple-double he had against the Lakers, including a couple big shots to, to beat the Lakers in Los Angeles. You know, that was that's all the mad, all Magic fans have been asking for, and I think they've been really, really excited. But obviously now he's coming into a new contract, and I think those expectations are going to change a little bit. He's going to need to produce more consistently than he has, which, again, is, is a tough thing to ask for a young player still figuring out how to play in this league. I, I know for me, I, I to see him blossoming down there with you guys, it's I'm happy for him. I mean, you're 19 years old. You're the number one pick. That's a lot of pressure to handle. And I think seeing him develop his shot, I think he's shooting almost 90% from the free throw line. I never thought that would happen, at least this soon. Chris, are you surprised at at how well Fultz is, is developing down there? I, I, I wouldn't say surprised. I think, obviously, the opportunities were never really there in Philadelphia. Injury, shoulder issues notwithstanding, it was as soon as that jumper kind of tanked, it was never really going to work next to Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. We, we just know how this team is constructed, and that was always going to be a tough tough thing to make work. But Markel always had some skills. He had that triple-double early in his Philadelphia career. He showed some flashes. We know he can control the ball, like Phillips said. Very smooth athlete, very, very well-paced, doesn't get too sped up, and he's a great finisher. So he, he's always had the talent to survive even without a jumper and I think Orlando gave him a, a real chance to kind of step into a consistent role and like you said I think it's my overall feeling is just happiness I'm glad that he has found a home and that he's doing well I I think the whole full saga in Philadelphia was just kind of sad and depressing uh, <laughs> you know I I, yeah. I know there's a, a certain part of the fan base that is still has some vitriol towards him. I, I never thought that was warranted. I mean, none of it was really his fault, per se. You can't really control shoulder injuries like that. We've never really seen anything like it. Was some of it mental? I don't know. But, it, I mean, it's pretty clear that something happened with his shoulder at some point. And uh, just to see him get the opportunities that he's gotten and to really kind of take that next step to get a contract, three years, $50 million, I mean, that's that's great. I'm, I'm just happy for him at this point. Yeah, now now this next question, and after this, we'll pivot towards some other players. But when it comes to Markel Fultz, um, he played with Ben Simmons. Some people would argue they have very similar games. Physically, the tools, they both are very gifted. Obviously, they were both number one picks, right? So the question, Philip, is do you think that Markel Fultz will eventually have a better career than Ben Simmons? Uh I, I do not. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that happened when Markel Fultz came to Orlando um, was the expectations for him changed. You know, like when you're when you're the number one pick in the draft, and especially with how Philadelphia traded up to get him. And and you know, again, I uh, unfortunately I think you know when Fultz is in Phil- with Fultz stayed in Philadelphia, he'd always be compared to the guy the Sixers actually drafted in Jason Tatum that they or the, the, the pick that the Sixers actually had that they never used, and Tatum's mm. obviously become an incredible player. That's that's a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, when Fultz came to Orlando, 
I don't think they ever expected him to be first overall pick Marco Fultz. Um, you know, I like, like before Fultz even played, I had some friends, I had, you know, some family members ask me what I think about Fultz or what I expect from Fultz. I'm like, you know, if Markel Fultz becomes Ricky Rubio, I'll be really, really happy. Um, and, and some people were like, no, he, he, that shouldn't be it. He's the number one pick. I'm like, no, he's not the number one pick anymore. He's, he's a player that you got to figure out how to use. And if he becomes, you know, Ricky Rubio doesn't have a jump shot, but he's, always been able to control the pace of games. He's been a gifted passer. He's been a really solid defender and he's been a starter in this league for a dec- for a decade now. If if he became that, that's, you know, for especially for what the Magic gave up, that's really really valuable. Um Ben Simmons, you know, does a lot of the things that Marco Fultz does, but the the thing that Simmons has over Fultz is he is a, a plus defender. I mean, Ben Simmons, I, I think people don't talk enough about how good his defense is. Um, he's able to guard essentially five positions, you know, probably more comfortably four out of five positions, but five positions. And, and I think that Simmons, you know, when when he's really on defensively is honestly someone that should be in consideration for all defensive teams if he's if he's not already. Um, Fultz's defense, again, granted, he's a young player. He's still kind of learning the league. Fultz's defense has left a little something to be desired. Um, I think when he's locked in, he can be very good on the ball. Um, I think that he is very opportunistic going after steals, but his attention does tend to linger sometimes off the ball. He does, does tend to ball watch a little bit too much. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's there's definitely a gap there. Um, you know, if Fultz becomes a better jump shooter, you know, the jury's still out whether that, that can happen or not. Um, you know, maybe he can get into that conversation, but I think... You know, Simmons can just do so many more things on the floor, even even without the jump shot, even without the questions about his jump jumper. He just does so many more things on the floor that I think will be valuable to a team. You can you can find ways to game to to plan for him and plan to use him really effectively that that, you know, I think Fultz, you know, is somewhat limited at. You need shooters around Marco. You, you need shooters around Marco Fultz in a way that I don't necessarily think you need shooters around Ben Simmons. Uh, you know, because of the position that he plays, you can you can hide Ben Simmons as a four. You know, you can't hide Marco Fultz as anything but a one. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I I I don't think you will reach Ben's height either. I mean, I think Ben is already like a top 20, 25 guy in the league right now. As is, even if he doesn't get better, it's going to be pretty hard for Markel to uh, reach that level. Like you said, Philip Ben is just a special defender, probably one of the best in the NBA. He could be in the defensive player of the year conversation. If he keeps up what he's doing, like he, he's just special on that end of the floor in a way that Marco isn't. And offensively though, we all know that Ben has um, some limitations. He, he's been really good on that end from day one. He, you know, triple doubles, what have you. He's, he's still a pretty, elite finisher when he goes to the rim maybe he doesn't go to the rim often enough but he's an elite finisher obviously one of the best playmakers in basketball one of the best assist men there's just it, it it's tough for me with Markel's jumper being what it is I, I don't think he's ever going to get back to like the form that we expected coming out of Washington I just don't think that's a fair expectation to put on him and as Philip sort of alluded to his expectations have changed, and I think he's developed into quite a nice player. He's going to be in the league for a long time, but I, I don't think he's going to reach that superstar star level that Ben is at right now. Yeah, I have to agree. And I do think that he does have the potential to demonstrate more skill. I think Fultz, his mentality as he matures throughout the years uh, with Orlando He's going to start doing more things, taking more risks, and with good coaching, obviously, and, and, and a solid foundation in terms of a team chemistry and team culture, I think he'll flourish. Getting to Ben's height, that's 
that's suspect because like you guys said, he does so much and defense really distinguishes Ben from pretty much anybody that plays his position. And the thing about Ben and and I, I knock Ben because I do think he could finish stronger at the, at the rim. I do think he does have some issues with confrontation at the rim. Um, he's not particularly as aggressive as you would expect a 6'10 super athlete to be. But I'll say this about Ben, his defensive tenacity and his pride. I think he takes tremendous pride in playing defense. That's something that it's all effort. And I, and I don't think I don't think Fultz has that yet. I don't think he's mature enough to say, you know, what, I want to go out and shut down my man. No, he's thinking about, all right, you know, how do I get the offense going? How do I make the right pass here? Things like that. So I, I'll agree with you guys. So let's let's go to the next question that has to do with a player that Philadelphia got in the offseason. And he's turned into kind of a fan favorite up here in Philly. We're talking about no one other than Dwight Howard. Now, before we started, uh, we were meeting for the first time, Philip and myself. And and Philip has been covering Orlando f- since 2010. So he was there when uh, Dwight Howard was there. And he even gave me a terminology that I didn't even know existed called a Dwight Mayor. I'm sure you can tell us about that. So, so Philip, knowing what you know, going through the ups and downs with Dwight Howard, what do you think about Dwight Howard's career arc since his days in Orlando? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, any any time a player who you know was a you know top five player in the league, I mean, Dwight Dwight Howard was one of in the in the late two thousands, early tens, he was one of the best players in the league, um, and it was it was not not a debate. Um, you know, I, I, I think at the height of his powers, you know, Oh nine, 10, 11, even there, there was only one player that LeBron James was scared to drive at. There's only one player that I think Derek Rose was scared to drive at and, and, you know, at the height of their powers. And that was Dwight Howard. Um, you know, the, the Howard, yeah, Howard was essentially the, the kryptonite to, to LeBron James for, for a couple of years there. The Cavs just could not match up with the magic to save their lives. And I think some of that had to do with the magic's length and speed, uh, with their offense, but a lot of that had to do is they had they had no one in the middle that could stop Dwight Howard, and he could just feast on the feast on the paint and kick out the shooters all all he wanted. It was just the perfect strategy to to kind of beat the cap beat those Cavs teams of the late two thousands. Um, but anytime you're a player of that caliber, you know who's MVP candidate, All Star, and you kind of fall off that 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 hill, you kind of fall off. It's really really tough to come to terms and accept the role, and I think. You know, Dwight Dwight had a back injury, a very serious back injury that I I don't think he took care of as much as he should have because for the first eight, nine years of his career, he was an Iron Man. He did not miss a game. I think in his time in Orlando until that back injury in the 2012 season, uh, he missed maybe one game because of an injury. I think he sprained his ankle one time and missed a game. Um, I think he missed another game because he was late for the team team playing. Uh, and so, or he didn't start a game because he was late for the team playing, but he played that game. He was an Ironman. Like he did not miss games for any reasons, despite the physical pounding that he took. I mean, some of the fouls that he took when he was in Orlando were just frankly ridiculous um, that they weren't, you know, called flagrants or they weren't, you know, penalized harder. I mean, he just, he got beat up a lot in his time in Orlando. Uh, and so I think the injury kind of sapped him a lot of his, of his energy, but for the long time, I think he still acted like he was a star player, that he was a player that should be the focal point of an offense. Uh, you know, we went to Atlanta, you know, there were, there were supposedly problems in the locker room because he wanted the ball more. When he went to Charlotte, he wanted the, you know, he wanted the ball a little bit more, you know, even Washington, even though he didn't play very much, he wanted the ball more. And I think what's happened over the last maybe two or three years 
is he's had to be humbled a little bit and, and mm. going to the Lakers, accepting a minimum contract, having to play a role and winning a championship, I think has changed. It feels like it's changed his mindset a little bit. It, he's come to accept that, you know, if I want to stay in this league, this is the kind of player I have to be. And it's almost like going back to what he was his rookie year. I mean, I remember his rookie year, uh, the Magic's coach at the time, Johnny Davis, you know, told an 18-year-old Dwight Howard, your job is to run the floor, rebound, and get putbacks. And that's all you're going to do. And that's all you're going to focus on. You know, they had a Clifford Ray was the Magic's big man coach at the time. Um, their, their job was teach him how to be the best rebounder in the league. And he became the best rebounder in the league. Uh, and just score off putbacks. And he averaged a double-double just on that alone in his rookie year. He didn't run rookie of the year, but it was very clear like they were laying the seeds for the kind of player they wanted him to be and the defensive player of the year that he was eventually going to become. So, you know, I think Dwight's kind of gotten back to those roots. Um, you know, his job with the Lakers was block shots, run the floor, get rebounds. And, you know, if if that's his role in Philadelphia, he's going he's gonna to be successful because especially with the Sixers, you know, they've got one of the best defensive centers in Joel Embiid. Now you bring in Dwight Howard off the bench, that makes it that much harder to score. It's going to make the Sixers defense a whole lot better. It's just, you know, if Dwight accepts that role and there's no reason why he shouldn't at this point, he's going to be he's going to be a big asset to the Sixers moving forward. Yeah, I think, like you said, Philip, I think kind of adjusting to not being a star was always Dwight's biggest issue over the past, you know, five, five or so years, ever since he kind of started to go downhill. The Lakers, obviously, where he clashed with Kobe, the Hawks and Hornets, where he had a rough time, as you said. I think spending time out of the league and then going to the Lakers where you're playing with LeBron James and you're playing with AD and you're on a minimum contract, you're coming off the bench, there's really no excuse at that point not to buy into your role. He was on a non-guaranteed contract too, so if he didn't buy into that role, he was gone and he was probably not getting another contract anywhere else. So last season, I think, was kind of make or break for him. And obviously, you know, he made it. He made the most of it. He won a championship and he did some really important things for that Lakers team. And I think that's a credit to him as you said, kind of changing his mindset. And now in Philly, he has really been kind of like the focal point in that locker room almost as a vet, kind of holding guys accountable. He's been extremely selfless, at least in his conversations with the media, talking about how he wants to put guys in the best spot to succeed, how he wants to teach guys to sacrifice for the betterment of the team, you know, talking with Joe, shooting with Ben Simmons, with the young guys after games. I mean, that's like a few years ago, no one would have imagined Dwight Howard being that kind of guy. But I think one of the problems with Philly's team last year was, it was said time and time again, like they didn't have enough accountability. Part of that was Brett Brown, and part of that was they just didn't have the right veteran leadership in the locker room. I think J.J. Reddick's absence hurt quite a bit, more than they maybe expected. And like Dwight Howard and Danny Green have really kind of filled those shoes. And I think that's going to really help Philadelphia down the stretch this season. Even if their on-court stuff isn't as great as it maybe once was. I mean, Dwight has looked the part of a really solid backup five. Danny Green looks fine, too. Like, like I think that leadership is really going to be big for them. So I, I do think it's a credit for Dwight for kind of making the changes necessary in his mentality that, you know, to sustain his career. Cause he was pretty much out of the league if that Lakers tenure didn't work last season. So, you know, you know, good on him. And we're going to move on, Philip, and talk about some former Sixers who are now playing in Orlando. And a guy we touched on a little bit earlier is of course, Nikola Vucevic, the former 16th overall pick played about a year in Philly before he was part of that, uh, infamous Andrew Bynum trade. Um, what do you think his arc might look like, Philip, if he had 
never been traded to Orlando. If he had spent the bulk of his early career in Philadelphia, if he had been on this Joel Embiid, New Orleans Noel, Julio Loco, four teams, how do you think his career arc might have uh, might have played out? Because obviously he's an all-star now. He's a great player, but the, it, it could look a lot different. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, that's 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 an interesting what if, um, you know, because I think, you know, he, he didn't get off the bench a lot uh, with that with that Sixers team. And, and they were obviously kind of in a weird place where they were both trying to compete and not, you know, try and trying to do something for their future. Like, obviously, they they were part of the the, the Andrew Bynum, Dwight Howard trade um, to try and get Andrew Bynum, you know, if, if I remember correctly, thinking that, you know, if we have Drew Holiday and Andrew Bynum, then that's that's going to be enough to, to make us an Eastern Conference contender. And obviously Bynum just never played because the injury issues were, were much more serious. And then that led to the process. And that's how you end up with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and, 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 all, the, and all those players. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting what if. Um, but, you know, I think, I don't think Vucevic, I mean, obviously Vucevic becoming an all-star was something that took a long time here in Orlando, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, I think Vucevic greatly benefited from being on a team like Orlando early in his career. You know, if he would have been coming off the bench in Philadelphia, I don't know if he ever becomes much more than a, than, you know, maybe a nice reserve player. I mean, his defense was always a little bit suspect. He just doesn't have a lot of uh, mobility and foot speed. And while his jumper was good, that wasn't necessarily something that teams around the league valued in a starting center at that time or in centers in general at that time. So he might've been someone that flamed out of the league pretty quickly if he stayed in Philadelphia, because I mean, he was coming off the bench and I don't think there was much prospect for him to jump into the starting lineup. I mean, Doug Collins didn't play him a lot that first, that his rookie year uh, at all. Um, So coming to Orlando, a team that was clearly in a complete rebuild mode, he started from day one. Um, He impressed Orlando early on with his, with his skill uh, and they started, you know, kind of building their offense around him. Um, but honestly, even Orlando, I don't think they fully trusted him as kind of the centerpiece of their team until six, seven years into his career in Orlando. It's been, you know, eight, nine years now. Uh, and it took a long time for them to really say, you know what, Nikola Vucevic is actually our best player. And and he probably was their best player for a long time. I mean, Orlando tried to bring in Serge Ibaka and Bismack Biombo essentially to replace him. And Nikola Vucevic essentially beat them both out. Um, you know, you know, Abaka was probably a little bit better uh, in that year here, but it was such a mismatched lineup with both Vucevic and Abaka in the, li- in the lineup at the same time. It, it just didn't work out. And obviously Abaka's contract situation had them shuttling him off to Toronto before the end of that season. I, I actually forgot that Abaka played with Vucevic on that Orlando it was, team. I, I, I want to forget it. It, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, my, I'll give you some perspective. I remember watching the Sixers when Vucevic was on the bench. And I remember Doug Collins, he, he had all this hype surrounding him, right? He used to play for the Sixers. He used to coach Michael Jordan twice. So there was this really high expectation that, okay, Doug is going to take us to the promised land. And when he sat, he didn't play Vucevic much at all, like you said earlier. And then the moment they traded him away, he turns into a double-double machine, which for me, that still irks me that we didn't give him a chance. And, and you know, what would his career be like if he was still with the Sixers? I, I have no idea, but, but I do know that I was irritated when they, they didn't give him a shot to play and they just traded him away. Yeah, and I think an even better question might be like, what does Philadelphia look like if they don't trade for Andrew Bynum? Because I think that really kind of accelerated their realization that this team isn't going anywhere and that we need to tear it down and that we maybe need to bring someone in like Sam Hinkie. So if that trade isn't made, we might have like Drew Holiday and 
Andre Iguodala, Evan Turner sticking around for a few years longer, we might have a different star trade that doesn't include a total zero like Bynum was. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of things could have been different had, uh, had that played out differently. And uh, to kind of round out our conversation, Philip, of course we have to talk about uh, everyone's favorite guard, Michael Carter-Williams, <laughs> uh, former Rookie of the Year, obviously, in Philadelphia at the very beginning of those process seasons, uh, has bounced around a little bit since then, has seem, seemingly found a home, though, in Orlando, signed a new contract this summer as part of that rotation. What has his arc been like from your perspective, Philip? What do you think has kind of helped him stick in Orlando that maybe he didn't have in places like Milwaukee and Charlotte? Um, just, just what's your perspective on MCW's career so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, Carter Williams has his shortcomings, and and I think what what the Magic have done really, really well is make sure they don't rely on him too much, if that makes sense. Like he he has a very kind of narrowly defined role. They they know when to insert him into games and what he's going to do when they insert him into games. He kind of is the guy that gives him a little bit of an edge. He he doesn't mind chirping at other at other players, and that's something the Magic frankly miss. And that's an element I think every team does need. They need a guy that's gonna that's gonna mix things up and, and cause a little bit of chaos. And you know, Michael Carter Williams, for all his shooting woes, has turned into a pretty solid defensive player. And it's about figuring out how to minimize the offensive issues and maximizing the defense that he that he brings you and the defense that he gives you. And Orlando has done a pretty good job of that in the year and a half that he that he was here. Um, you know, Magic signed him for the final twelve games of the twenty nineteen season, and it honestly felt like he was there much longer. It honestly felt like he was there for like half the season, um, because he just made that big of an impact on the team, just kind of giving them some energy. You know, again, giving them a little bit of defensive chaos. Like he's he can go get steals. He's going to block a few shots at, at the guard position. Uh, he's going to lock down whoever he's guarding for the most part. You know, he's actually a, a I think a really solid rebounder for a guard too. He can get up the floor really quickly. Um, doing all those things, you know, really really help change that second unit and give the Magic that last little push they needed to make the playoffs in 2019. Um, did all that again in 2020. Uh, but again. The issue is you can't rely on him for too much. I mean, I, I think we saw this last night actually when in the Magic's game against the Thunder or Sunday night or Saturday night in the Magic's game against the Thunder. Um, he was over he with Evan Forney out, they decided to start him. Um, starting him next to Markel Fultz was not a good idea. That it was it's not been a good idea when they played together in the past because there's just no shooting and teams just kind of pack the paint and dare everyone to make shots. And Carter Williams missed four threes. They were all wide open. Um, you know, I, I think he's a, a a little bit better of a shooter than people think, but the percentages are never going to be good. Uh, and and so the key with Carter Williams, I think, and the thing that I think a lot of teams have had to come to realize and figure out is you got to use him in small doses and in the right way. And if you don't do that, you're you're going to come away disappointed with how he's playing because I mean, again, teams know he's he's not a shooter, and they're going to ignore him if you put him out there too long. So I I was I'm one of the few people in Philadelphia that did not like the process or would probably argue that it should have never happened. And I, I think when it comes to MCW, it was frustrating for me because I didn't understand what management was doing at the time. And just like every fan, I wanted the Sixers to be successful and to win. And the moment he won rookie of the year, I'm thinking, yes, something's finally working out. And then not too far later, Sam Hankey traded him away. So that, that, that was disappointing to me, but at the same time, He's moved on, and I know fans are trying to move on. But at the same time, um, his, his skill set, just looking at MCW, the player, it just hasn't worked out for him. And I think to all the points you were talking about, Philip, if he's given the right opportunities and has certain expectations, 
that fits within his skill set, he'll he'll probably flourish down there and, and good for him. Yeah. And I mean we talked about it with Markel Fultz and the expectation change that happened when he left Philadelphia. It was kind of the same for MCW. I think that rookie of the year campaign was a bit deceptive. It made people think that maybe he was like a number one, number two option, that he was gonna be this big like scoring playmaking engine for a good team in the future. That obviously is not the case. That's not who he is. That was just the state of Philadelphia's roster at the time. And I think him kind of bouncing around, finding his niche as like this defensive energy guy, as as you said, Philip, is is good for him long term. And I, I think that we we it's just a similar situation where guys who who are drafted in a certain place and have certain expectations as a rookie it can be really hard for them to shed those expectations and be, it makes them be viewed as a disappointment because a lot of people viewed MCW as kind of a letdown for a while. But he's found a spot and he looks like a rotation piece. So so you know, good for him. I think he's he's kind of figured it out now. Can can I can I go on record with something to to to, to stir the pot for your Philadelphia audience here? Sure. Go for it. Victor Oladipo should have won rookie of the year that year. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I forgot Oladipo used to play for Orlando. He's bounced around a little bit. I, mean, I would love to have him on the Sixers right now. He, he's a player. I mean, of course, he's a little banged up. He had a serious injury a few years ago. But, but yeah, what happened with that? Why did you guys ship him out? I'm just curious. So, I, I mean, I think, I think there are several things happening. Um, one was a little bit of mismanagement of the cap. I think, you know, the Magic, you know, had a dis- decision the summer before to re-sign or, or let go Evan Fournier. And they gave Evan Fournier a contract. And so when Victor Oladipo's number came up, you know, I think there was, I think, there, again, like we talk about rookie expectations. Oladipo was the second overall pick in the draft. You know, he, you know, again, second in rookie of the year that year, that year. But I think there was an expectation that Oladipo was going to make kind of the star leap, as, as I like to call it and become an all-star uh, and just too many times he was just very inconsistent. Like, you know, his, his three point shooting never really came around. Um, you know, he was scoring like 16 points per game, but really inefficiently. And the team was just kind of spiraling out like they, like they, I mean, they won 35 games one year, but they struggled to win 30 games in his other years in Orlando. And so I think when it came down to it, there was a year left on his contract. Um, they, I don't, he was going to demand the max and I don't think the magic were willing to trade to give him the max. And so they shopped him around. And I, and I do think that was the right decision because at the time, you know, Oladipo just wasn't taking that leap and he was uh, probably the most valuable trade chip on the team. They'd already locked up Evan Fournier. It seemed like, you know, someone was an odd man out and it felt like Oladipo was probably going to be that guy. And so if there's a chance to trade up, you know, for a star, trade a young player for a potential star to kind of tie the roster together, it was probably going to be trading Oladipo. It's, it's kind of similar to where the Magic are at right now with like an with like an Aaron Gordon, where you know Aaron Gordon, uh, you know Aaron Gordon probably can't get you a start at this point. But I think the Magic's hope is Gordon plays well enough that they can swap him for someone that fits a little bit better next to Jonathan Isaac. Um, that that obviously that hasn't happened either because Gordon's kind of plateaued as well. Um, but I think they I think they decided that Oladipo wasn't worth the max, and if that's what he was going to get in the market, they had to trade they had to trade him or they had to explore his trade market. I do think that was the right decision. I didn't think he was worth the max at the time with the way he was playing in Orlando. Um, and I, But I, at the same time, I, I think that the trade they got for him wasn't the right trade to make, especially considering the other moves they made that offseason where they you know, signed Bismack Beyond. You know, they traded Oladipo for Serge Ibaka. They traded Oladipo and, DeMonte, and the draft rights to DeMontis Sabonis, which was a huge mistake as well, uh, for Serge Ibaka. Uh, and and I, I like the Ibaka pickup provided they also moved Nikola Vucevic, which they didn't do. 
And also they signed Bismack Biombo for some reason to a four year $72 million contract or whatever it was, uh, which was a terrible, which was a ver- very much at the time, a terrible decision. It proved to be a terrible decision. Uh, and, and so the magic just kind of dug themselves a hole out of a decision that was probably rightfully decided, but wrongfully executed. Wow. Well, I tell you what, Chris, Philip, man, they got a good thing going on with the, uh, the Orlando fan sided um, site with Philip because he definitely knows his stuff. So, Philip, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate your time and, and your perspective. No problem. Thanks for having me on any anytime, guys. I I, I always enjoy talk, look, watching the Philadelphia 76ers when I can. Um, it's it's the Magic and the Sixers are definitely two. Uh, you know, we can uh, during the off season we can talk maybe more about this. I, I've the Magic and the Sixers are definitely two cautionary tales about rebuilding. I I feel like. <laughs> Um, I, I don't feel like either team got what they wanted out of out of major rebuilding projects. So happy happy to be on anytime you guys need me. Sounds good. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. And uh, Philip, if you want to just tell our listeners where they can follow you, where they can read your work before you you head out, would you want to do that? Yeah, you can find me on on OrlandoMagicDaily.com uh, for any any interest you have in the Orlando Magic or, or Markel Fultz or Michael Carter Williams and Nikola Vucevic. You can follow me follow us on Twitter at OMagicDaily. My personal Twitter account is Philip R underscore O M D, um, and I do have my own podcast, the Locked On Magic podcast, covering the Magic uh, every day. So definitely check that out too. Thanks for having me on, guys. So yeah, we just really had some some good tidbits coming from uh, the Orlando Magic. Uh, fan-sided site expert. So hopefully he gave some some interesting details about what's going on with Fultz and obviously uh, what we can expect from Dwight Howard. So right, what we're going to do right now is we want to go back. Let's look at the games that we didn't talk about. Obviously, there were some big games, including the Toronto and the Charlotte game. So let's go ahead and start with the Raptors, Chris. Uh, what stood out to you in that game versus the Raptors? Um, well, mainly that it's a game that the Sixers have very rarely won over the past few years, just the type of game that they normally kind of fall short in, mainly being that it's against Toronto, a team that has had their number at different points. Um, Seth Curry made that big three down the stretch. That's a shot that is like always rimmed out with every Sixer ever since I've been watching the team. Um, Including JJ Redick. Yeah. So it's nice to have someone who who can shoot the ball at that level and, and make those big shots. And I, I think what stood out most was, again, Ben Simmons' defense. He's taken a lot of flack for his offense. And, you know, with certain people pushing for a James Harden trade, us included, that has kind of ramped up the the pressure and kind of put a, another kind of magnifying glass on his game. But he shut down Pascal Siakam, who has had a bit of a rough start to the season in, in no small part due to that Sixers game. It just looked bad. He fouled out. He stormed off the court and went to the locker room and ended up being benched the next game for disciplinary reasons. So that it was just a tough night for him. And the Sixers really executed down the stretch in a way that is, I think, very promising. They they had, obviously, crunch time struggles in the non-Jimmy Butler era under Brett Brown. Uh, not to say that this team is constructed for those moments in the game. They still have, they don't really have that consistent perimeter shot creator that they would ideally have, but uh, Joel looked great. He's been great all season. He has more space to operate. He's passing better out of double teams. I think that's huge down the stretch of games. And just having maybe a fresh perspective from someone like Doc Rivers is really going to help him too. I'll agree with you on the Curry, uh, the Curry point that you made because, like you said, in past years, that shot 
that huge shot in the fourth quarter that that never goes down, right? Someone always clanks it off the rim. Even Jimmy, uh, not Butler, even JJ Redick when he was here wasn't as clutch as people would expect because he was such a pure shooter. I'm going to go with Tobias Harris on this. I think that was the game where he really came out after having some really bad games, especially uh, the Cleveland game. And he had a double-double in that game. When he was on the floor, he was a plus 21. And since then, he's been playing lights out. And I know how much you you love Tobias Harris, Chris. So I would. <laughs> Did you see on, on Twitter I, I, I said something uh, to the site? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that the Toronto game was was a really nice rebound from an ugly loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers. I want to say one more thing about that sure. Curry shot. Mm-hmm. That's also a pass that I don't know if Joel Embiid would even make in seasons before. Like, that Curry shot was wide open because the defense swarmed Embiid. He drove baseline. He drew the double. And he made a perfect pass out to the open shooter. Down the stretch, like I think there are times in past seasons where Joel tries to force up that shot or he turns the ball over. So I think that's also a credit to Joel again improving his passing out of double teams. He's this has by far been the best stretch for him in that regard early in the season. Uh, so I, I think he deserves credit there too. Yeah, and and Lucas, he couldn't be here with us. I think he made an interesting point a few weeks ago on the podcast about Dwight Howard bringing that experience because he was always double teamed wherever he's been, especially Orlando. So maybe he and, and Embiid have gotten together and worked on how to improve passing out of the double team. So that, that's a good good call on your point. So uh, let's let's go to the Hornets game, which happened last night. What did you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, that was just fun basketball, I think, on both sides. Obviously, Philly got out to a quick start. They scored 39 points in the first quarter, and they – sustained that hot shooting from the Orlando game, which we talked about with Phillip, where they were just making everything. Tobias had another great game. He's really kind of changed his mentality entirely from the first couple of games. I don't know if that's because Doc finally got through to him or if it just dawned on him. I I don't know. But Tobias has been really good the past three games. He's been doing pretty much exactly what Philly needs from him, which is just launching open threes when he has them with confidence, not overthinking things, quick drives, quick passes. That that has never been his game in Philadelphia until these past three games all of a sudden. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I hope it continues. And, I mean, the Sixers just made everything. They are, they're, the shooting is going to come down at some point. They're going to regress to the mean. We'll see how they hold up then. But on a slightly more negative note, it was probably their worst defensive game. I mean, Charlotte pretty much got to the rim whenever they wanted. Terry Rozier exploded. I mean... I, I, I added him to my fantasy team one day too late, apparently. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that they've, they've been number one in the league in defensive rating up to this point, I think. I would assume that last night was an aberration. But they, they did not defend very well. They'll have another chance to play Charlotte tomorrow in the same building, so they can maybe rectify some of those issues. We'll see how Rogier and guys like Devontae Graham do in that game. But... Overall, I mean, the Sixers are 5-1. and one. They're tied for the best record in the NBA, and I, I think we're off to a pretty good start. Yeah, that, the Hornets game, it's interesting to see what, what their roster has shaped out to be, picking up LaMelo Ball and, obviously, Terry Rozier, who's the ultimate Sixers killer, right? Some bad memories, especially when he's with Boston. But last night, I, I was glad for Danny Green. He has not played well all season. He came out hot, hit a couple threes. 
So I was glad that he was able to assert himself early. And I wonder if Doc probably told him to, to do that. Embiid is on a tear. I predict he will be in the running for MVP top top three. He may not win because there's so many outstanding players that, that do probably maybe even a little bit more than he does offensively. But I think he he's proving to everyone that when he's locked in and he's in shape, that guy is, is almost unguardable. So I'm happy about that. And Tobias, that, that one play where he uh, dunked on Biombo, that was thing. That was a thing of beauty. And then that alley yeah. dunk from Curry. I, I don't know if you remember that. I think it was in the third quarter. But uh, it's a fast break. Ben got a steal, gave it to Curry, and then Curry gave it right back. That was that was beautiful. If, if the Sixers keep playing like that, they're they're gonna really end up in a good spot going into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, again, it was just really fun basketball. The ball was swinging. They were making extra passes. Ben looked as well as he has all season, had a triple-double, 15 points, 11 assists. He had nine of those assists, I believe, at halftime. Joel, only 19 points, but again, just another good game, solid game from him, taking advantage of the attention that he draws inside. Danny Green, as you mentioned, had 11 points in the first quarter. He didn't do much after that, but I think people have kind of been waiting for him to to turn it on and to show something, and he finally did. I've been on the record on this podcast saying that he's going to figure it out. Like, he... Deserves his spot in the starting five, I think. I, I think he's going to be better defensively than he has. I think he's still a really solid player. And hopefully last night was the kind of uh, sign of things to come. Well, speaking of things to come, everybody listening, we know that the new year just was brought in. We're in 2021. It's kind of weird saying 2021. Hopefully it's a lot better than 2020. But uh, Chris and I, we're going to do a quick segment on uh, what – Sixers should strive for in the new year? In other words, what are some New Year's resolutions that we would assume that certain players would have on the Sixers? So we'll we'll start with the bench and then we'll go to the starters. All right. So I'll go with the list, Chris. Let's start with Tyrese Maxey. What what should be his New Year's resolution? I mean, you can probably save this for a few guys on the roster, but just to shoot more threes, I think that's obviously the big part of his game that is lacking so far. He made the first of his career last night against Charlotte, and it was on the second straight possession in which he attempted a three, which was nice to see that that confidence is something that he needs from beyond the arc. He's been getting to the rim at will when he's been in games. Great floater package in between game, smooth finisher at the rim. A lot of, you know, that speed, as we've said on this podcast before, is just something the Sixers really haven't had in a guard in a while. But in order for him to really take advantage of that, he has to be a threat from deep. He only shot 29% at Kentucky, but, I mean, the mechanics look good. He's always had the touch. So I, I think at some point, if he doesn't start hitting threes more regularly, defenses are going to adjust and they're going to sag off and they're going to make him play on the perimeter. And unless he's hitting those threes, that's really going to kind of hamstring his game. So I, I, I think his New Year's resolution should be to shoot more threes, essentially. I think. Aside from that, I would say his New Year's resolution for me would be to continue to gain awareness. Because he plays point guard, there's so many more responsibilities that he'll have to uh, have on his shoulders, run the offense, pick and rolls, um, obviously making the right decisions in the paint. I mean, he has a really nice floater, but there were some plays this year, and it's early. He's a rookie, I know. But, you know, he 
threw up some wild shots or maybe it was a turnover. So I would say uh, awareness, just awareness for the young rookie and to improve upon that. Let's go to Furcon. What do you think, Chris? Furcon Korkmaz. I know he's hurt, but what do you think his resolution should be? I mean, I think it's just to – I don't know. It's tough with Furcon. I, I guess I'll say defensively he still has a ways to go. I don't think he's ever going to be a plus defender, but he has bulked up. He has looked better. Just continuing that growth on that end to where he can hopefully at one point get to at least being like a net zero where he's not a, a complete albatross in the playoffs that you can't play. Um, he seems to be trending in that direction. He's looked pretty decent um, when he has played this season. So hopefully that, that's a trend that he can continue into the new year. So, yeah, I think defense is the obvious answer. I'm going to just give something a little different, and that would be to become a top 10 three-point shooter in the league. If he can even be more of a threat from beyond the arc, it's going to continue to allow Joel and B to, to be dominant down low. When he comes back, if he can shoot close to 43, 44% from three, that that's something that's going to help not only him, but obviously the, the 76ers and my boy, Matisse Thibel. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say, Chris, but uh, Matisse, what do you think should be his new year's resolution? I mean, I think aside from like dribbling the ball, less, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it's discipline. I think that's really what's kind of holding him back. Probably in, in Dr. River's eyes is just, he still has a few too many plays defensively where he gambles too much or where he loses his man. And to, to be kind of that solid defensive presence that you like to speak about, to really be someone that the Sixers can rely on one-on-one, I think that's the next step. I, I don't think he's quite there yet. Obviously, offensively, he's he's not giving you much. So he really just needs to nail home the intricacies on defense and become a really staunch, like reliable one-on-one off-ball help defender. Like, if he can really reach that all-defensive level that we'd like to hypothesize about, then he's going to get minutes regardless of his offense. So I I think that's the next step. Yeah, I would agree. Just refining his offensive skill set, particularly dribbling, and just, I guess, like Maxi being more aware. And I think he's a fundamentally sound defender. I know you, you have an issue with some of the risks that he takes, but I like when he takes the risks. Because it's only going to make him better. Uh, he's going to learn from some of those mistakes. And I'm wondering if, I think when it comes to pick and rolls, if you watch him, um, he'll try to go around the pick and, and follow his man. And the man will, his man will pull up. And that's where he gets a lot of those uh, tip blocks from, from, from the rear. So I would agree. Matisse needs to step up his offensive skill set. Um, but I'd, I'd want to see him take even more risks. I, I think that would help help the team get some easy buckets. What about Dwight Howard? What do you think he should should focus on? I mean, it's tough for Dwight because obviously he, he has lost his step defensively and he's not what he once was offensively, but he's, he's pretty much done his job in every conceivable way. He had a rough game, a rough couple of games these past, past week, but I mean, with him, it's just, I guess, continuing to do what he's doing in the locker room to continue holding guys like Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons accountable and continuing to really maybe reach the young guys, which we've seen him do. He was shooting with Terrence Ferguson, Isaiah Joe, Dakota Mathias, guys that aren't getting minutes after the game last night. 
and just continuing to do the little things like that to kind of be that glue in the locker room that Philadelphia has lacked in years prior is really going to be his main value to the team. I think he needs to find a way to get buddy buddy with these refs because <laughs> they they call every they call, I've never seen a center get called for more offensive fouls and it really doesn't look like he moves much whether it's a pick or there's some type of out of bounds play and he gets called for it. but but I have nothing for Howard I think he's being the good soldier and I, I think he's doing what he's been asked to do and our Love our beloved six man, Shake Milton. What do you think should be his resolution? Um, I, I mean, I think just more consistency. He's had a few rough games here in the early part of the season, but he also had 19 on opening night and he had 18 last night. Hopefully more games like that and fewer like the, say, like Cavs game where he, he just kind of no shows. I, I think expectations may have been, again, set a little too high. That's something we've talked about in the past with Shake, where he just has that kind of explosion last season in February, 39 against Docs Clippers. And we're all wondering if he's what Markel Fultz was supposed to be. Like, he was a second-round pick for a reason. Part of that reason was injury, but, I mean, he, he was a second-round pick, and he he's still fairly new to the NBA, and playing a role that he, he he's someone that doc clearly relies on even late in games so that that's a role that's new to him and a responsibility that's new to him and that he's going to need to grow into that but just confidence consistency really i i think that's his next step i would echo those sentiments exactly so we'll, we'll move on to the starters let's start with danny green chris what's his new year's resolution well, I mean, I think you can kind of say the same thing, right? Just consistency, being there every night, hitting shots, as we've come to expect from a career 40% shooter from deep. Um, he's not going to hit three in a row and score 11 points in the first quarter every night, but he also kind of no-showed for the last three quarters. So just being a more stable presence, which I think he will be, I think I think he's still a solid two-way player. Um, we, we've seen his defense maybe take a step back for a few of these games. I know he's getting older. That's just part of part of getting older. But I, I think with Danny Green, it, it comes down to consistency as well. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Once he demonstrates that he can give you 20 minutes a night and can give you, you know, maybe two for five or three for six from three-point land, I think he'll he'll add something to the team that was missing last year. So let's get to uh, – Arguably the better the better Curry brother, uh, Seth Curry. What do you think he needs to work on in twenty twenty one? I mean, Curry is he's shooting over fifty percent, I think, from three so far. He scored twenty one and had six assists last night against Charlotte. Like the early results are obviously very positive. There's not a lot to complain about. I think he's even better than we could have rightfully expected, but. There are still a few plays, or maybe he overthinks it, where he passes up an open three and either dribbles or just resets the offense, where it's like, if if you're one of the three, four best shooters in basketball, which Curry is, you know, just let it fly. Like, shoot 10 in a game if you if you have the opportunities, you know. He, he's not Duncan Robinson. He's not J.J. Redick. He's not going to fly around screens and shoot off-balance threes like Marco Bellinelli, that's not his skill set, but, <laughs> you know, he, he has, he, he's one of the best shooters in basketball, and I, I would kind of like for him to play like that. I, I wrote the article, we can plug that later, like, 
maybe hasn't aged too well because he's put together a couple of really strong games. But just more confidence from him, I think, would be help the offense even more. I think Curry, his New Year's resolution should be to figure out how he can become roommates with Joel Embiid. I know Ben Simmons tried to do that already, but the closer that he gets to Embiid, the better the chemistry, particularly in in the offense, because the more the more reps they get and the more experience they get together and learning each other's tendencies, that's gonna that's gonna pay dividends in the playoffs. It's gonna be a really, really good tandem that defenses are gonna have to prepare for. And because he's such a good shooter and because Embiid is so dominant down low, it's gonna be tough to defend. So I, I would just say keep growing chemistry with Embiid. And let's go with Tobias. What do you think about Tobias Harris? I mean, just keep it up, right? Um, if we had recorded this podcast a week ago, it would have been to do all the things that he's suddenly doing, which is just like letting that three-pointer fly when he has an open shot, not overthinking it, not jab-stepping 32 times, not dribbling into no man's land and then turning the ball over. Like, either shoot it, drive it, or kick it, and do so decisively. And that's what he's done these past few games. He's looked really good. He had 24-9-6 and six against Charlotte. I mean, that's the Tobias Harris Philadelphia thought they might be signing to $180 million contract. He's never going to live up to that contract. But if he does what he's doing now all season, he's not going to be a 50% three-point shooter. But he could be. He was a 43% three-point shooter under Doc in L.A. If he's even a 40% shooter from deep, that drastically improves this offense. If the ball's not sticking with him, if we continue to see the ball movement that we've seen these past couple of games, Philly's going to be really tough to stop. So really just like keep doing what he's doing. <laughs> I'm going to have to say that after seeing Tobias for the past several years on the Sixers, he is really an underrated defender. And I'm putting myself out there because some people say, oh, what do you mean? He's, he's, he's not a great defender. He's a good defender. If you've seen him play and, and we watch every game, Chris, he does some, some things on defense that you might not expect from him. But and he's not the most athletic player, but he stays in front of his man. He'll get a nice block when you need it. He had a couple last night and even uh, defensively just staying with his man and, and maybe getting a steal or two. So shout out to Tobias for going above expectations because he's not known as a defender in terms of what I would like to see him do, Chris, in 2021. I want him to develop that mentality of I am going to be that guy in the last minute or seconds of a game that the Sixers can rely on. Now, hold on. I I think with Embiid, even though he's having such a great year, there's still so much involved with getting him the ball, double team coming. But in terms of, you know, giving it to Tobias, I think if Tobias keeps it up, I would trust him in a critical game situation to take his man off the dribble or, or maybe Ah. post up and cause he has a pretty decent, uh, pull-up jumper and as you saw last night when he gets some steam he can he can get a uh, get to the rim and, and slam it so I would hope that I would want to see him develop a killer instinct because you think about it Chris when he first got here there were so many he had to figure out where he fits in now that he is a leader and is the highest paid player I would say hey you take the last shot but that's just me. I mean I, I think that's the thing with Tobias is like He's really just not good at creating from scratch in isolation. He doesn't have the explosiveness or the quickness to 
really separate himself from his man. I think that's really one of his weaknesses. So it's it's tough. I mean, I, th- I, I think part of his success these past few games is him buying into more of a complementary role where he's not taking that initiative on so many possessions and where he's just moving the ball again or, or driving decisively and kicking it out to shooters or taking it to the rim or just launching spot-up threes. I really think that's his sweet spot. Uh, late in games, it's tough. Like, the Sixers don't have a closer, and at certain points they're going to have to go to Tobias because he is one of their better players in those situations. But uh, I, I, I honestly kind of think, like, the the opposite is kind of where my head's at. We will move on with, with the idea of agree to disagree. And, you know, let's just skip Ben Simmons. We already know what he needs to work on. No, I'm just joking. Uh, what do you think, Chris? New Year's resolution for Ben. Yeah, just take it to the rim, please. Um, you know, it's like I'm, I've am i given up on the three-point shot. I know he hit one in the, the game the other night against Orlando. I, I, I really couldn't care less. He didn't hit one against Charlotte. Surprise, surprise. Um, didn't shoot one against Charlotte. It, it's just aggressiveness is, has always been Ben's weakness. He's too timid around the rim. He avoids contact, as you, we mentioned earlier when talking about him in relation to Markel. He just doesn't take it strong to the rim like a six foot ten freight train should. Like He's one of the best athletes in the world. He's crazy explosive, strong, a great finisher. And despite that, I don't know if it's a fear of the free throw line or just some weird kink in his game that he he, he hasn't figured out, but like, just, just take it to the rim and embrace the, he should be fouled eight times a game, like shoot free throws. Even if you go eight of 16 from the line, that's great. More of that, please. Like he, he's just got to be more confident in taking it all the way to the rack and, and embracing that contact. Now I will agree with you on the three point part of his game. I've, I've given up and I, I don't, I don't care anymore if he doesn't shoot threes, but I think if he just tried at least maybe once or twice a game to look for his shot, like some type of maybe pull-up jumper when he gets close to the rim, as opposed to jumping. And he's not, you can tell he jumps in the air and he's not even contemplating a shot. He already has it made up that he's going to kick it out for three. And right now that's great. But in the playoffs, teams are going to prepare for that, especially when you might go to a seven game series Teams adjust to that. So if he makes the defense think, okay, maybe he will shoot it this time. Maybe I will collapse. Then that'll make the team much more efficient on offense. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not worried about threes, but just just try to have more of a scorer's mentality. He Just, just try it, Ben. You can do it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I think he's still way too predictable. Um, he, he's great, but he's super predictable as is. Like that shot against Orlando, if we are going to super analyze it, like that looked like a designed play where he floated out to the corner and he was ready to shoot it. Like that was pretty seamless. It was kind of a surprise to see him just kind of catch and shoot like that. Yeah. And he had a similar play against Orlando where Embiid dribbled down, passed it to the corner, and he like gave a little head fake to Rogier like he was going to shoot, but he didn't. Yeah. So I don't know if that's something that Doc drew up or if it was just a spur of the moment thing. But again, I don't expect it to be a consistent part of his game. So in regards to developing that scorer's mentality, it's going to have to be just like attacking the rim like no tomorrow. That's where his, if he's going to take a leap, that's where it's going to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. And last, but certainly not least, 
Joel Embiid. Chris, what's his New Year's resolution? I mean, there's really not much to complain about through these first five games. The Sixers are undefeated when he's been on the floor this season. He, like you said, is an early front runner in the MVP conversation. I don't know how long that will last, but just continuing to make those crisp decisions when he's doubled in the post, taking advantage of his gravity as a post-up threat, but also like the shooters around him, just continuing to make those sharp passes is that that's how he maximizes his game in crunch time. Like if defenses are going to collapse on him, kick it out to the open shooter, Seth Curry. That's how he hit that big shot against Toronto. So more stuff like that and making those quick decisions, continuing to cut down on turnovers that that's, I think where he needs to continue to focus. I would hope that Embiid would commit himself to his mentality, keeping this mentality a mature Embiid, not an Embiid that's dry humping the ground. No, <laughs> absolutely. The that opposite. was weird. That More was... of that, please. Oh God. Anyway, as I was saying, I was being Joe sarcastic. needs to clown every possible defender that he oh, that is the best version of Joe. I don't know. I I just want to see him to keep up this production, and it, it seems like he's trying to prove all his doubters wrong. I think he sees himself in the conversation mm-hmm. of MVP. I really think he he really wants to win that award, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to keep it up, right? And I think if he does that the Sixers can go as far as he takes them. And we know Ben is important and Tobias, but this is Embiid's team. And this could be his year under a new coach and a new system. And, you know, he's a father now. Maybe that kind of clicks something in his head. But but I'm excited. I, I, I look forward to Joe just keeping that that mentality of, you know, I am the, I am the Sixers leader and I'm going to take us as far as, as I can take us. And hopefully it's a championship. There's that article on ESPN where they kind of talked about his son, his newborn son, being kind of something that has kind of facilitated that change in his mind. And his trainer, Drew Hanlon, who I know every Sixer fan loves, uh, said that they've been talking about legacy a lot lately. And, I mean, we've seen that with other guys, like Victor Oladipo has had very similar conversations about his son. Like, when guys have kids who they want to be a role model for, who they want to set an example for, it can really kind of flip a switch in their head. And I I think what we've seen from Joel is some of the best basketball of his career so far. We're only six games in. A lot can change. A lot can happen. But if he continues to do what he's doing, the Sixers are going to have a real chance in the East. They'd have a much bigger chance if they made a certain trade. But (laughs) Joe's looking great. So I, I think there's a lot to like from him. I think that's it, Chris. I think we're ready to roll on out of here. All right. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Six Sense Podcast. If you're listening on Google Play, iTunes, wherever, please leave a review, leave a rating. We really appreciate it. It would really help us out. And for those who like the Orlando Magic section of the podcast, please follow Philip. Go read Orlando Magic Daily if you have any interest in that. It's a great site, very well run by Philip. Uh, we highly recommend that. And we will talk to you all next week. Have a good one and go Sixers. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.